welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Introduction to the topic of ocean currents. Uh, me and our boys and Angie, as well as uh, the Graves family and their boys, uh, all went camping on Shell Island, Shell Key, Shell Key, um, just uh, on Friday night. And so on Saturday morning, the boys woke up very early, as they tend to do when you're camping out and the sun comes up. The sun is up, so I am up, and there were the kids. So as the morning went on, uh, they were playing on the boat, which we had anchored to the shore and out in the water. And all this jumping around and hollering that four boys between the ages of four and nine would do while jumping off a boat um, caused the shore anchor to come loose. This was right as a friend of mine, who will remain nameless, had left to go out into the woods to take care of some other things. And so I am left there on the shore as the boat begins to pitch away from the shore with four young boys on it. To which my wife and Jane look at me and say, go fix it. So I quickly run out into the water, and I got about waist deep. And let me be honest, I'm not the hero of this story, because I got about waist deep into the water, turned around back to the shore and said, it's really cold. To which my wife responded, go get the boat. I just want everybody to know, for the record, it's cold. I'm doing something heroic here. I I wanted my due diligence. Well, as I I got more than waist deep out in the water, I realized that the current was quite strong. And uh, it was was tough, and finally I was able to grab the anchor and pull it inshore. And and then I had no idea how to anchor that anchor into the... tried to just put it down into there. Apparently that's not exactly how it works. Um, I'm not quite what you'd call a boater. But I got this, you, you got up close and personal. As I was sort of looking at the water from the shore, it looked fairly calm. As I got in there, it was pushing very hard in one direction. <coughs> if you've lived around the water, this is something you understand, the idea of a current. The, the interesting thing is, in our language and the way that we talk to one another, there is something, a phenomena very similar to this, which is the idea of a subtext, right? I can say something to you and mean a little bit something else, right? Sometimes we call it loaded language, right? Uh, Husbands, you know that there is subtext to the question, did you take out the trash? Did you take out the trash is the words. The subtext is, I'm trying to be polite and tell you to go take out the trash. Right? There's, there's the words we say and sort of the, the meaning and what we're really getting at underneath of it. What's interesting is the passage that we're going to read today from 1 Corinthians is a passage that's about one thing, to be sure. But there's a subtext underneath of it. There's a bigger idea going on. There is a current that Paul is dealing with in this text. And it's interesting because the problems, the the subtext, the currents that Paul is dealing with in the church at Corinth are the same things that you and I find in our own hearts. Last week, um, if you were here, bravo for coming back uh, because we talked about sex last week. 
uh, we talked about Paul addressing uh, the church, and the church had a problem where the Christ- Christians were going to prostitutes and saying, no, no, this is fine, everybody's doing it, be cool, Paul, don't worry about it, it's just going and seeing a prostitute. What was interesting about that text and what we saw last week is that underneath of that was this idea that they thought that because they were a Christian, they could do anything they wanted. That they had a license to sin, if you will. That was last week. This week, Paul is going to continue uh, to talk about this idea. He's going to sort of address sex from another angle. But the subtext is a little bit different. Instead of people who are saying, I can do anything I want, people saying, it doesn't matter what I do, he's going to address people who think that they can win God's approval through their actions. If last week the subtext was license, this week the the thing that's going on underneath of this text is the idea that I can be righteous on my own. And these two poles, these two sort of attitudes of I can do whatever I want or I can earn God's favor are the same thing that is in your heart and mine. Think about it. Are you more prone in your life to disregard what God says and do your own thing? Or are you more prone to think that you can earn God's favor? Most of us have a mixture of both. Most of us have a little bit of both of those going on in our hearts at any given time. But most of us, when we really get honest with ourselves, have one of those. Have one of those that we gravitate to. Either we sort of disregard what God says and do our own thing, or we think that I can earn God's favor by doing the right amount of good things. This is what was going on in the church of Corinth. And so as Paul comes to chapter 7 in Corinthians, he's, he's moving from addressing those who were sort of wild and out of control and saying, I can do whatever I want, to addressing those who had a more subtle, uh, 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 harder to spot problem. Which was that they thought that they could earn God's favor, that they could be righteous on their own. And so as Paul does this, he moves from things that he's heard about the church. Paul has been talking to the people of Corinth and saying, "Uh, I've been told by the people that have come to visit me this and this and this. And that's what Paul's been addressing so far. But he's turning here in chapter 7 to a letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. And they have a set of specific questions that they want Paul to answer. And he's going to start answering them. It's kind of like his version of Five Minute Friday, only he's a lot more eloquent and under the inspiration of God. But as we read this text, what we're going to see is that our self-righteousness and envy cause us to deny the good gifts that God has given us. The way that self-righteousness and envy work is they cause us to deny what God has given us in our hearts. So I'd like to read to you the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 7, and I'd like you to stand as I read that to you. Paul says this, 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I am myself. He's talking about being single there. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if my brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? City Church, this is the Word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So it's interesting that back-to-back with what we read in chapter 6, we find these passages. Because it seems like the people of Corinth had several different factions with several different problems. And the problem of these folks is very different than the problems of the people we talked about last week. Last week, they were saying, Paul, it's totally okay if we go and visit prostitutes. Don't worry about that. This week, something a little bit different is going on. What it seems from their letter that the, some of the people in Corinth had said is, no, 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 not only are those people bad, not only are the people that are going and visiting the prostitutes bad, but, but there's something else. We are so spiritual. We have our stuff so together that we're not even going to sleep with our spouses, and that's going to make Jesus even happier with us. So, Paul, tell us we're doing the right thing, right? Paul? We have, we have cut off our husbands and wives. We're not sleeping together anymore. Paul, this is, a, this is a good thing, right? And Paul says, no. It's interesting. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Bible doesn't believe in sex apart from marriage. This week, what Paul's saying is that the Bible and Jesus doesn't teach marriage apart from sex either. And so what we read as we read this is that the people were saying that I am so spiritual. 
I have so much spirituality that I'm going to stop having sex with my spouse. And Paul says, you are completely missing the point. See, they thought that they were getting brownie points with Jesus for this. And Paul says, no, you're not. And let me show you what a marriage is supposed to look like. And as he goes through, he does a couple of things uh, that are pretty radical for the culture around him. And the first thing he mentions is that sex is not just for procreation. Sex is for pleasure inside a marriage relationship, which would have been fairly radical in his time. And the second thing he does, which is radical in his time, is this. He says that there should be mutual submission within a marriage relationship. Paul is saying that husbands and wives should mutually love one another. That This isn't a one-way street. And this was a big deal in Paul's culture. Because at the time, the people around Paul said, no, 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 the husband says whatever he wants, whatever he wants goes, and, if, and the wife is just along for the ride. And Paul says, no, Christian marriage looks different. In Christian marriage, there's mutual submission between husband and wife. But the people of Corinth they didn't like that. Because the people of Corinth had this idea where they would draw lines around certain sins and say, not only are we not going to commit this certain sin, but we're not even going to go close to this sin. It's interesting, when we were camping, we had one of those gas camping lights. right? And we told our children, don't touch the gas light. Well, of course, four boys, four to nine years old, what are they going to do? They are going to play games and dance as close to that light as they can, right? And despite all the warnings that we give, they're boys. So what did we do? We drew a circle around the lamp and said, okay, don't go inside the circle that is drawn around the lamp, right? And of course being boys, being excited, being hopped up on s'mores. They couldn't even handle that. So there were some timeouts to be had. But how often do you and I do the same thing? Does God say, don't do this? And we say, oh, no, no, no. It's not even just bad to break God's law, but we're going to put some extra stuff around here and say it's bad if you cross these lines. See, we all have this tendency in ourselves to make certain things, certain sins worse, and we really have this tendency to elevate our preferences to the level of morality. And they were saying, it's not just bad to have sex, it's bad to have sex with your spouse. See, we draw these lines and we hold other people to them. We hold other people to what our standard is, not what God's standard is. That's the essence of self-righteousness. Think about it this way. Let me explain it another way to you. When you are walking around downtown St. Pete and you see somebody doing something that you find to be eye-rolling, what are the things that when you see somebody else doing it, you go, 
look at this terrible person. Oh, I'm glad I'm not this person at this place. Or maybe it's not when you're walking around downtown. Maybe it's when you scroll through your social media accounts, right? When you scroll through and go, well, <laughs> I know where the bad people are tonight. They're all in the same place, and they're all doing this, right? Thanksgiving's coming up. How many of us sit around our Thanksgiving table with our family, and when we look up from our turkey and gravy, look at our uncle and go, ah, oh, this uncle, can you believe who he voted for? This, this brother-in-law, I mean, can that guy even get a, can that guy keep a job? In all of those cases, those things that make us roll our eyes, those things that we put onto other people and go, oh, I'm glad I'm not them because I don't do this thing, are all evidence of your tendency and mine towards self-righteousness. Whether it's righteousness based on our voting record or righteousness based on how well of a job we keep or how much education we have or how much money we have or whatever the case may be. Whenever we say the world would be a lot better if everyone was just like me, we have gone to self-righteousness town. And the Corinthians were saying the world would just be a lot better if everyone was like my marriage and stopped having sex. And Paul says, no, no, wrong. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And so then Paul keeps going and he begins to explain something which is all of us, whether we're married, whether we're parents or not parents, single, wherever we are in our lives, it's a calling. Did you catch that as we read through the text? He kind of stops and addresses different people along the way. He says, look, if you're single, this is how I want you to think. If you're married, this is how I want you to think. And the thing that ties all of those things together is Paul saying that wherever we are in life, whether we are single, whether we are dating, whether we are married, whether we have kids or not, whether our spouses have passed away, no matter where we are on sort of the relationship spectrum, that it is a gift from God. Paul uses the same language here for our calling to marriage, to singleness, to whatever it is, as he's going to use a few chapters from now when he talks about spiritual gifts. Things like uh, the gift of hospitality, the gift of serving others, the things that we normally think about, about ways that we serve the church. That giftedness that Paul talks about there is the same language he uses to talk about our sort of status in life. And this is hard for us because there's no sort of single area in our life that causes more frustration and envy than sort of our relationship status. And this happens on all sides, right? People uh, who are single oftentimes look around and go, oh, I wish, why, why can't I be, how come I have to be the single one and somebody else is married? How come I have to be the one that deals with this loneliness and everybody else gets a partner? Why is, and we get frustrated and envious 
of other people's relationship status, of other people's lives that they've been given. What's interesting, and what most people don't think about, is that the same is true in reverse. So many people who are married look at people who are single and go, ugh, that's the life. Like, I don't think I would have to have a calendar if I wasn't married. Right? Those of you who have been to my house, right, you've seen that color-coded giant monthly calendar where we have to like write all of our stuff up there. And then I have friends who are single who are like, hey, we're going over to flying boat. You want to come with? No, I can't. I've got to have like at least 10 days warning for something like that. You can't just spring this on me. It's half a mile from your house. It doesn't matter. It's not on the calendar. Man, I wish I was like them. I'm so envious of people that can just hop in their car and do whatever they want. Right? That can leave their house in less than five minutes. Right? Because it takes me 20 minutes to walk out the door. All of us tend to focus on what other people have and what we don't have as far as our calling in our relationship status. And let's be honest. That's hard. The loneliness that comes with being single is real. And I don't want to sugarcoat that or soft pedal that or ignore that. And I think in Christian culture, this has sort of been added to. The sort of expectation of marriage is sort of uh, an ideal. Sort of Christianity somehow got co-opted by the sort of 50s nuclear family idea. And Paul says, no. Some of us are called to be single. And it's not a deficiency. It's not a problem. Rather, it is itself a calling. But it's hard because where we want to go is to focus on the loneliness. The same thing for those of us who are married. The sacrifices that it takes to be married, the sacrifice that it takes to be a parent, sometimes block the view of what we get. They block our view from the blessing. And in whichever case we are, whether we're single whether we're dating, whether we're married, whether we have kids or not, what happens is that we become self-righteous towards others. You know, you know, Justin and Angie, they don't get to go out with, for, for coffee at nighttime with people because they got to keep their kids. You know, this church would probably grow a lot more if they could go see more people and get coffee with more people. Shape up, Justin and Angie. Or vice versa. Gosh. Why don't why don't why don't you millennials put down some roots? Right? Flying off every weekend to see the Bone Ivers and the Mumford and Sons and the you know. Anytime anytime that we take our group of people and the people like us and say Everybody should be like me. Guess where we've gone? We have gone to self-righteousness town. Paul says, no. 
you don't get to be self-righteous about having more time and less responsibility. You don't get to be self-righteous about the fact that you have kids and other people don't. You don't get to be self-righteous about your situation in life because guess what? It is a gift given to you by God. Not that you earned. Look, married people, I know that you like to think that you are married because you've got your stuff together. No, you're married because Jesus gave you a gift. I know some of you. I know how some of your relationships started. Thank you, Jesus, for that. It's a gift. It is not something that you earn. Those of you who are single, you are not deficient. You're not broken. You're not a second-rate Christian. Jesus has a unique call. Paul ends this passage with this really interesting section where he lays out the, the, a kind of a last case where he says, look, if you are married and you're married to someone who is not a believer, here's the advice, here's the counsel that I'm giving to you. And where we would expect Paul to say, go ahead and leave, everything is fine, Paul doesn't say that. Instead, Paul says, if you are married to a non-believer, and it's not an abusive relationship, and they've agreed to live with you, stay with them. Why does Paul say this? Well, he tells us at the end of the chapter. He says, how do you know? How do you know what's going to happen? Because how do you know that God won't use you to help that person come to know Jesus, husband or wife? You see, what Paul is showing us is that because of because marriage is a covenant relationship, the grace of Jesus is shown all over the place. And the grace of Jesus comes to us and flows through these sort of relationships. And the reason it does is because guess who the hardest person in the world is to be self-righteous around? The person who knows you the best. Husbands, do you know who can call your self-righteousness and smell it a mile away? Your wife. Wives, Do you know exactly who knows when you are being envious and self-righteous? You guessed it. Husbands. The same is true if we have a roommate, right? You can't hide from those people who you have that much contact with. Which on the one hand make those relationships difficult. You can't fake it. They know. My wife knows my problems better than any of you. And it is a great gift that she stays with me. Now, the same is true in converse. I know all of my wife's faults. And it's a great gift that Jesus gives that we stay together. But because these relationships are so close, 
not only do we see the flaws in one another, but we get to see the goodness of Jesus through them. The person who I have to apologize to the most is my wife. The person who apologizes to me the most is my wife. See, we can't hide from them. And there's something about the fact when we as Christians are living in a relationship where the masks and the walls, the facade of our self-righteousness is torn apart, there is something life-giving and grace-filled in those relationships. And Paul says this is even true if your spouse is not a believer. Husbands and wives, if this is your scenario, there is something about being genuinely repentant to somebody who is not, that is shocking. And Paul says that for those of us who are in that scenario, we should stay together. Now, I want to be clear in this, that Paul says, does not say, that if you stay in that relationship, that that person will come to Jesus. That's not what he says there in verse 16. But he does say that there is something normal and natural about the way that grace works through families. This is the reason. This text is one of the reasons that we practice infant baptism at our church. Because grace most naturally and normally works through families. But the problem in each of these scenarios, the problem with husband and wives not sleeping with each other. The problem with people envying other people's calling in their relationship life. The problem with all of this, the thread that ties it together, the subtext and the undercurrent is our envy and self-righteousness. Which is interesting because one of the metaphors that the Bible uses for our relationship to Jesus, for the church's relationship to Jesus, is that of a marriage. And Jesus says that we can come to Him and confess. The cross reminds us that we do not have it all together. Jesus died for your self-righteousness. It's interesting when Isaiah sort of talks about this, he says something, he says that all of our good deeds, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You see, it's easy for us to look at people who are different than us and say, those are the bad people who need Jesus, when the Bible tells us, no, even your good works show how bad you need Jesus. Because they are touched and tainted by your self-righteousness. But the good news is that Jesus is loving and faithful. He does not leave us or forsake us. In fact, He makes us clean by the blood of His cross so that we are changed. And as we are changed, as we repent of our even our self-righteousness and envy, those things that other people can't see, as we sort of repent of those things, come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, His grace begins to change us. So that instead of envy, what we begin to see in our lives is that we are willing to serve others. You see, it's really hard to serve somebody and do something for somebody else if you're envying them. 
you envy them, you can't serve them. But thanks be to Jesus that His grace changes our envy into service. And that His grace changes our self-righteousness into compassion and patience. May God work that 